Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Russian forces have pulled back from around Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and Ukraine says it's retaken more than 30 towns and villages. But what the Russian troops have left behind is sheer horror. In the town of Bucha, the streets are littered with bodies. Some, with their hands tied behind their back, appear to have been executed. Others are buried in a mass grave. More than 300 residents were killed, according to the mayor. Freaking medieval. Holly Williams of uh, CBS on Face the Nation, she goes on. Ukrainian soldiers are removing the dead with caution, fearful they could be booby-trapped with explosives. Ukrainian officials say these images show the naked corpses of at least four women on a highway outside Kiev. They claim the Russians tried to burn the bodies. Yeah, so they are apparently uh, going with the whole systematic rape thing that is popular among Russian soldiers. Part of the whole denazifying the country, I guess. The freeing the Ukrainian people from the Nazi government includes raping their women and shooting all the men. Right, gunning people down indiscriminately in the street, including the elderly, children, whomever. And if you hadn't seen the video, so you got, they, they, they from far away, like, lasso the leg of one of their dead, you know, somebody that lived in their town, and drag them because the Russians are putting booby trap bombs in some of the corpses, so when you go to try to give them a decent burial, both out of respect and to keep the disease down... Uh, you might die yourself trying to help them, which is just fantastic. Utter brutality. It really uh, it makes uh, a lot of people in the free world, myself included, want to give the Ukrainian army anything they need, whatever they need, heavy weaponry, airplanes, whatever. Well, there are a lot of calls for that from around the world today from world leaders. Um, and as significantly, utterly closing off the pipeline of cash that Putin gets through selling energy to Europe. That's going to take a little while. Europe is still wary of decimating their economies and having no oil, but uh, it's it's coming. French President Emmanuel Macron said today that a new round of sanctions targeting Russia were needed, while leaders from Germany, Poland, and the UK have signed uh, signaled a similar stance because of these, this new information, world leaders calling for tougher sanctions and for doing more about the obvious war crimes. It's, uh, I guess it's just something you have to accept that this sort of thing can still happen in modern Western countries in the year 2022. I mean, it is happening. Yeah, you have to accept it intellectually, but reject it forcefully in terms of uh, logistics. I mean, in terms of uh, the real world, like sanctions, like war crimes trials, like, as you pointed out, and I think it was a great point earlier, Vladimir Putin is done as a global figure at the big meetings of the G8, the G20, whatever. He's just done. He doesn't stand in those rooms. He doesn't shake those hands. He doesn't host any freaking Olympics. Ian Bremer tweeted out yesterday, a world where a man like Putin has control over thousands of nuclear warheads, vast natural resources, and the lives of millions of people at his personal disposal is a world we need to change. That's not a policy of regime regime change. It's just basic humanity. I listened to a great podcast. He was on with Sam Harris, and they had quite the conversation over the weekend about uh, what the world can and can't do about this and how it could turn into a full-on... Cuban Missile Crisis close to nuclear war situation quite easily. 
Still could do. Still, still, still on the table very easily. And also, Ian Bremmer's fear that you end up with Russia and China and a couple other countries, not a lot. But China is going to be the biggest e- e- economy in the world here in a few years, paired with Russia and a couple other bad countries, and the rest of the world. And the whole globalization thing is over, at least for now. Globalization is done, and there are just two spheres. And you either do business with that one or that one, but they're completely different. They have different rules, different technologies, different currencies, everything. That might be where we're headed. Yeah, it's interesting. You bring up uh, Xi and the Chinese. Uh, alert listener Mort sent us a link to an article that maybe we'll talk about a little later. But um, he actually says, looks like Ian Bremmer may have been right. Jack may well have been over-egging the pudding. <laughs> When he said that 2021 was the year that we saw that Xi Jinping was actually a communist, his common prosperity narrative has dried up from party statements. That was the, we're rolling back the free market, and now we're going to go commie. That narrative has dried up from party statements, and many of his economic reforms have been walked back. Mm, I had heard that. Mort points out, I agree with you both, that him being a communist was good for America. It looks like we might not be getting off so easy, or at least so fast. He's uh, he's observed that uh, stomping the break of the free market has been damaging to his country, so he's letting off, at least for now. Who knows? One thing Ian has been saying over and over is that this recommitment from NATO countries to their militaries is not going to change. This is permanent. Well, nothing's permanent, but permanent in you know the immediate future, the coming decades. Um, that's not going away. Reliance on Russian energy is going to be gone by this next winter, and that ain't coming back either. These are major changes to the way the world is structured. And then if the whole globalization thing ends, which is certainly on the table, it's, we, everybody's just living in a different world there than than what we've had for the past 30 years since the end of the Cold War. Well, and I have no great desire to turn this to partisan politics because I mostly find partisan politics annoying. Um, Obama but- caused it. Uh, he so did I, to a large extent. I think extent. that you may be over egging the pudding a bit. Oh, this pudding is so eggy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, the blah, 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 partisan politics. But the argument from the Republican side that, hey, we want to make America the world's energy giant again is incredibly appealing <sighs> when you, you know, juxtapose that with, or our friends in Europe can continue to be junkies for Putin's oil and finance his rape and genocide. That's a pretty good argument. God, we have the opportunity to be the world's energy supplier. We've got it. The technology exists. Only stupid politics get, getting in the way of it happening. Oh, yes. Yeah. Stupid, performative, does-no-good unicornian politics. It's better for the world because we do it in a greener way. than it, It's not a green product, but it's greener when it comes out of our ground than when it comes mm-hmm. out of the ground in Saudi Arabia or Russia or China. Hell yeah. Drill, baby, drill. That's what I'm saying. So we talked about another topic uh, last week a little bit, and and my answer was a little fuzzy because I was trying to remember what I'd read, and it's all slightly complicated. But the question is, why are the super progressive woke crowd so aggressive about sexualizing young kids or teaching them about sexual orientation, transgenderism in first grade. I mean, why would you be that enthusiastic about that? Well, there's an explanation for it. It's it's pretty troubling. has to do with the origins of all this critical theory stuff. Interesting. I want to hear that. Then we're going to talk to a great writer about what's going on in Ukraine and what he knows about it. So we'll get to that this hour, too, as 
you know, the the whole world changing thing is still on the table, including nuclear war. Woohoo! Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Hey, Michael, let's get some of that Grammy-winning music on. Come on, the Grammys were last night. I haven't heard any Grammy-winning songs. All right. Here we go. The only Grammy I'm interested in is the one who baked me pies as a child. McGrammy and McGranddad. Bunch of pop stars running around in their push-up bras and their nonsense. Have you seen the Madonna Twitter, the TikTok video? We will have to talk about that later. Holy oh, crap. You've got to oh, look boy. at it. You no. w- you wish you oh. hadn't. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> but you should check Here, it out. Here, smell this, in other words. <laughs> All right. So this is important. i got to get to this. I tease this. Uh, number one, i got a couple of things. I'll start with this, uh, this uh, scholarly study of um, the usefulness of queer theory to impact the innocence of childhood. And I'm going to summarize very much because I want to move in uh, on the exhibits uh, B and C, but in an effort to consider the contemporary residues of historical violence on theories of healthy child development, I'll consider how histories of colonialism and transatlantic slavery extended in the future, leave traces, blah, 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 and how important it is to dismantle childhood innocence to fight this stuff. Okay, straight out of your critical theory world. And I'm going to read you a Twitter thread from a, an author, and it is so interesting. I had come across a an essay, rather long, from a young woman who had got swept up into the transgender thing and was describing how it happened and why it happened. And it is precisely like parallel with the reasoning in what I'm going to read you. It was it was amazing the extent to which, um, I mean, it was it was beyond coincidence. It's clearly what's happening. So this guy Josh Dawes is talking about um, what why the left is so enthusiastic about teaching little kids about uh, gender theory and transgenderism and the rest of it. Uh, read another great essay that if you uh, describe the don't say gay bill in Florida, the law to people using the actual language of the bill, overwhelmingly popular, even overwhelming, among, even among Democrats and Biden voters. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So you have to twist it into something it's not. So where's that enthusiasm coming from? What do they want to do? Well, I'm going to jump into the heart of this. They want to create literal revolutionaries. To do that, they need to sever the bond between students and the parents they believe are raising their children to be hateful bigots. This is getting back to getting rid of the quote-unquote innocence of childhood, which they see as perpetuating the systemic racism, the uh, heteropatriarchy thing, which they hate so much. In order to sever the bond between parents and their children, the left is using a two-pronged approach. Critical race theory and radical gender ideology, properly known as queer theory, are not two unrelated sets of ideas. They are two parts of the same strategy. CRT is usually the first set of ideas to be introduced. This is often enough to radicalize minority students, but it's merely step one for many white or white-adjacent students. 
whatever white adjacent is. Uh, CRT, critical race theory, instills in these students a negative self-identity as they're taught to believe they're recipients of enormous privilege that was stolen from others and that they are complicit in historic and ongoing injustice. In child terms, they're taught to believe they're bad. Yep. Apart from the shame and guilt, this also give those, gives them a worldview at odds with the one that their parents grew up with and are trying to pass on to their kids. That's how you end up with such a small chunk of young people that would be willing to fight for this country if we got invaded. So again, the key phrase, they're trying to give the kids a worldview at odds with the ones their parents grew up with and are trying to pass along. Step one is complete. Once critical race theory is done tearing these kids down and leaving them with a negative self-identity, queer theory is introduced and offers them a wide assortment of positive self-identities to choose from. Instead of living with the shame and guilt of being a member of the oppressive dominant culture, these students can be celebrated for coming out as gender non-binary or pansexual. In an instant, these kids can trade their negative self-identity and all the accompanying shame and guilt of being an oppressor for a positive self-identity as a much-venerated, oppressed minority. At this point, I want to make another, another reference to the transgender girl uh, article in which she got sucked into the world of Tumblr, which if you're not a teenage girl, you're not a, a young person, you probably don't get and understand. But it is a place where disaffected, troubled uh, young people come together and they interact online. It's God, supposed to be a safe space. Tumblr, this, there's so many of these. This critical theory stuff runs hot through all of those conversations. And this girl was so demonized as a heterosexual, cisgendered, white girl. She was demor- She was miserable because of that. And the way she saved her soul was to say, no, wait a minute, I'm transgender. And instantly, instantly, she went from a brutalized pariah to a celebrated uh, warrior. That'd be pretty intoxicating. And once it became public, the yes, you are, yes, you are, yes, you are crowd, the critical uh, queer theory people, whisk you along that conveyor belt as fast as they can. Well, and just the, the, the adoration. I mean, if you were a nobody before and now all of a sudden people are into you and paying attention to you, that's pretty powerful stuff. Ah, but you're not a nobody. You're a horrible criminal. You are berated. You're belittled. You're mocked. You're, you're tortured verbally online. Oh, they pray to be nobody, but they make this instantaneous transition from villain to hero. We're talking about adolescents here or small children. How appealing is that to a child? You have to think about it through their eyes. Getting back to the uh, Josh Dawes piece. So in an instant, these kids can trade their negative self-identity and all the accompanying guilt and shame uh, of being an oppressor to being a much-venerated, oppressed minority. At this point, the left desperately wants this new idea to stay at school, so it has time to be cemented before the parents find out. Oh, boy. In the guise of helping these students, schools withhold this information about their child's new identity from mom and dad. How many times have you seen that portrayed as, well, we're not going to out the kid or or bring uh, uh, problems upon them. This is a safe space at school. Once the parents do find out about their child's new identity, it's firmly in place and has an adversarial relationship between the child and parent. And uh, I'm sorry, the adversarial relationship between the child and parent has been manufactured. It takes extraordinarily deft parenting to repair the relationship once it has reached this stage. And that's the first most parents know about it. The parents' tendency will to be overreact 
to be over, I'm sorry, will be to overreact and push the child further into the arms of the woke radicals who now have the little revolutionary they wanted from the beginning. Oh, yeah. You're, you find out your kid at age whatever has, has already started down that road, you'd be in a tough spot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The bond between parents and child has been severed, ending the perpetuation of hate and bigotry. Now the little revolutionary can be shaped uh, through the critical theory because they no longer have the bond with the old school parents. The left is determined to replicate this process in as many families as they can using whatever means at their disposal. It's not about child molestation. It's about capturing the minds of impressionable children. Uh, I, I think that is a beautiful explanation of what's going on. They just want to drive a wedge between parent and child, and then they have the child. Of course, one good way to avoid all of this is if you just teach math and science and reading and stay away from all the other crap. Well, and keep in mind, the critical theory people say they need that stuff to be taught, their stuff in every single class. Math is about critical theory, uh, language arts, history, geography, every spelling class huh? needs to be about critical it, theory. It already is to a great extent. Already is to a great extent. Good luck trying to get any history going that doesn't include that. Fight it, folks. Fight it. Everything woke turns to sh- Bill Raggio of Long War Journal, if you've ever followed him, he is a great thinker on all the stuff war. And we're going to talk about that coming up next. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I wonder, will you settle for anything less than a full withdrawal of Russian troops from every inch of Ukrainian soil? It should be 100% withdrawal of troops to their borders that existed prior to the 24th of February, at least. If they have the an approach that they is making this authoritarian decisions. Why do we need this bloodshed drama performance for? Let's simply sit down together, the two of us. That was Vladimir Zelensky, President of Ukraine, on Face a Nation yesterday. He said uh, the Russian military is committing genocide against Ukrainians. There was talk for about, what, 24, 48 hours of a meeting between Putin and Zelensky, that talk went away very quickly as all the news broke yesterday of the horrifying atrocities the Russian military had perpetrated on these towns as the Ukrainians take them back. And how could how could Zelensky sit down with Putin without attacking him with his hands and trying to kill him right there where they sat? Here, here. So to discuss this and uh, related Matters, we welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show, Bill Raggio, Senior Fellow, Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and the editor of the Foundation's excellent Long War Journal. Bill, how are you, sir? Great. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you guys again. Yeah, thank you, and uh been following your writings and your tweets and everything like that, but we haven't talked to you since this conflict started. Where are things? What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so, you know, the point you made about why would uh, Zelensky sit down with Putin, and look, first, to be clear, 
the Russians suffered a defeat in Kiev, but we have to keep in mind that the, this is one battle in the overall context of a war that will take a long time to settle out one way or another. Um, that was, the Russians failed in its efforts to take Kiev, but we have to remember that was one objective of, of several. The other objectives would be to take the east, the Donbass region and the eastern Ukraine, and the, to seize the territory along the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. The, if the Russians are successful in doing this, they've taken all of the sea of coastal areas of the Sea of Azov and most of the Black Sea, with the exception of uh, one small city and uh, the, also the city of uh, Odessa. If the Russians can achieve that, then they would strangle the Ukraine, make the Ukrainians a landlocked country. So this is what this is the context. Um, the Russians are having more success in the south and in the east, and this is where the fighting is now going to shift. Uh, I think the Russians made a big mistake, by the way, in trying to do too much at once. It bit off more than it can chew. It didn't have the capabilities to be able to take Kiev and those areas. So now the fighting is going to shift to these areas, and this is why this is why Zelensky is negotiating. It's the the fight for Kiev was bloody, and it took a lot of Ukrainian resources to do it. We're going to you know we're going to see how this settles out in the south and east. But Zelensky, I think he knows that they, that that's a more difficult fight that's in front of him. So is the utter brutality of some of the Russian troops' actions and the reducing of Mariupol, for instance, to just a pile of rubble, is that just the brutality of war, or was that that destruction and depopulation part of Putin's strategy from the beginning? I'm mixed on this. I mean, I think the Russians are not going to act as a Western military do. Um, But I think if the Russians strictly wanted to commit genocide, such as uh, President Zelensky is saying, and just slaughter Ukrainians, there were far easier ways to do that. Um, We, you know, this this unfortunately gets me branded as a Putin supporter, which I am clearly not. But if he wanted to level cities, just you wouldn't. This is they're not doing it the way you would have done it. You would roll up your artillery and just continue day and night shellings, right? The, the Ukrainians have decided to fight in, in the cities, as is the right, as if I was in their position, I would do so as well. But when you decide to defend your cities, um, you, the, the other choice is to not do so, to declare it an open city. This is what the French did in Paris in World War II, and there's other examples of this. Um, but since they dis, decide to, to fight in their cities, to defend their cities, you're going to get this, right? Russian munitions are not, you know... People have the perception, I think, that warfare is, is uh, you know, a video game, and every munition is a guided munition. I talked to um, individual, uh, to commanders, Marine commanders, um, that I had embedded with in Iraq in, in 2005, 2006, 2007 time frame, and they were telling me how they ran out of precision-guided munitions very early in the war to take Iraq and at different periods in time. We can't expect the Russians to have our level. So, again, not making excuses here, but there are far easier ways to commit genocide, than sac- particularly in the Kiev area, than sacrificing a large um, amount of your armor and, and taking casualties as they have. I believed that peak worldwide uh, support for the Ukrainians and, you know, our, our emotion of we got to do whatever we got to do to help these people had peaked a, a week or so ago, and it was going to, you know, I was worried that it was going to trail off. But all that stuff that came out yesterday, as we're seeing what the Russians actually did, um, you know, while they held these towns, just, just the horror and everything like that, there's a whole new round of emotional reaction going on right now from world leaders and 
um, you know, just, just just regular people looking at pictures and videos. I see that on MSNBC, Ali Velshi just called for NATO's direct military involvement. And I wonder if we're going to be hearing a lot more of that sort of talk today. What do you do you think that's a good idea, taking the emotion out of it? Uh, is is there any way that that could be a positive? The emotions are very positive for the Ukrainians, and they've run an effective uh PR campaign during this war. Uh, It's gotten them the support. They certainly won the war in the news and and, and Twitter. And again, I would do the same thing if I was the Ukrainians, but it hasn't succeeded in drawing in um, NATO any further than by committing sanctions and with military supplies and training and things of that nature. NATO doesn't want to get into a ground war with the Russians. Um, I would argue that, by the way, that this one thing this war does tell us is that the Russians are not a conventional military threat to NATO as long as NATO remains united. But we're already starting to see cracks in the facade of NATO and the European Union with Germany and other countries saying, look, we got to sanction the Russians, but we need their gas and oil and we got to be careful about how we do this because this can hurt us too much. As this war goes on over time, you know, I do think, and I think your observation is correct, it sort of peaked, and then the, the Ukrainians are winning in Kiev, and, and every, the focus kind of goes away. What's going on in the south and east, uh, you know, it's not as quite as important as what's happening in the capital. I'm talking about in the perceptions of people's minds when they watch TV. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's going to lead to further involvement to NATO, though, it, 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 but just greater calls for support sanctions, which I'm not sure is really going to bite all that much more. Bill Raggio is the editor of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy's Long War Journal, uh, chatting with us today. Uh, Bill, you mentioned at this point in the war, I think a lot of people feel like it's past the halfway point and is now starting to wind down. It actually promises to go on for quite some time, doesn't it, as, as Putin solidifies his hold on the South? Yeah, th- this is this is one of the arguments I made at the very beginning of this, that it was never going to be a short, quick war. Look, I, I use the analogy of um, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. We launched shock and awe in order, in an attempt to overthrow the government, cause a collapse of the government. It didn't work. We launched a ground campaign in, in, in conjunction. The Russians tried to take Kiev quickly. It didn't work. And they tried to, to, to lay siege to it. They tried to surround it. It didn't work. But there's, but the, what was like you noted is what's going on in the south and in the east, and and you know that is also key battle points. Like this is the real point. I think the Russians' mistake was to try to, to put too much force into the Kiev area. If it focused more of its forces in the south and east, it could have divided Ukraine in half. And I think that's its ultimate objective. And when if if you understand that, you understand that this war was never going to be a quick war. It's definitely going to be a long war. How do you see it ending? How's it going to play out? It all depends if the Russians can adapt their tactics. Uh, they've performed poorly, particularly around Kiev, but they've had success in the south and east. I think it's some. It's a matter of who blinks first. Russians have taken losses, but the Ukrainians have taken losses as well. We, one of the problems with this, I, I, I perceive their coverage as being very one-sided in the sense we hear about Russian tank losses and casualties, which I think are highly inflated. But we're not seeing the cost to the Ukrainians other than when we see what the footage we're seeing out of these liberated towns, what, how are the Ukrainian military units faring? Are they, you know, what are their losses? Are they going to be able to shift to the east where the Russians theoretically have uh, more advantage and shorter supply lines and more uh, things of that nature? But 
the Russians are going to have to adapt if they're going to want to succeed in in linking up and encircling some Ukrainian troops that a large number of Ukrainian troops that are fighting along that front in the east in the Donbass region. I, the so, answer to your question, I don't know. The, the fortunes of war are, are it's it's very difficult to predict. Well, let, um, me, let me let me jump in with them. Is there a decent chance that it happens what you just described there? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Russia gets the the port towns and the land bridge and everything like that, and like you know, really decimates the Ukrainian military and really puts Zelensky in a position where he has to surrender a bunch of. I mean, like, could it really go bad for the Ukrainians still? It, it could still go bad for the Ukrainians. It, it, if look, if the fighting ended today and they sat down and negotiated. The Russians occupy a significant portion of the south and the east, I mean, areas of northern Ukraine as well. Ukraine, you know, those troops are, Russia is not going to withdraw those troops. They're either going to have to be ejected or they're going to have to agree to concession, which I can't see Putin doing. So the question is, can Ukraine or is the Russian, does the Russian military adapt and to, to the realities of this war and, and the, how it has to fight? If you look at the history of the Russians, they usually do poorly in, con- in the beginning of conflicts and, and figure it out and, and add more force. But you know, the Ukrainians, they're a very good defensive force. We're going to see how good they are on the offensive in the, in the south and east. Well, and we barely have 90 seconds left, but you referenced the American uh, invasion of Iraq in which our forces were every bit as capable as they were reputed to be. And Saddam's were much less than they were reputed to be, which is kind of the opposite of the situation we're talking about. But uh, then came the occupation, and I've got to believe a a, a long-term Russian occupation of a significant chunk of Ukraine would be just a, a horror for the Russian troops, incredibly bloody and expensive. Yeah, and this is where if the Ukrainians keep fighting, it will be. But if there's a negotiated settlement, we have to remember that it will be incumbent on the Ukrainians to keep a peace. That's something that that's what's not being considered here. Uh, And uh, that will make, you know, could there be resistance? It would probably be underground and there could be resistance locally. But if the Ukrainian military itself is is conducting this, you know, then you could have a reignition of the war in the wider area, in the non-occupied areas. And, and then wow. the Russians are capable of launching airstrikes, missiles, things of that nature. Right, right. Well, an overdue chat, and one we enjoyed very much. Bill Raggio, Senior Fellow, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, editor of the Long War Journal. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for the thoughts. Thanks, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. People will study for years when this is over how Ukraine dominated the information battle on this whole war and because they have and because we're all rooting for the ukrainians for the best of reasons because russia's evil and the ukrainians didn't have this coming at all um it's really easy to overlook how you know the likelihood that russia gets over on this yeah i was going to ask him what bothered him most about mainstream media coverage of the conflict but i think he kind of got to it yeah but uh, you know, we could we could people that aren't paying quite as close attention could wake up to to find out that Russia got all the south, encircled the Ukrainian military, forced to surrender, and now have a big chunk of Ukraine, mm-hmm. the part that they really wanted, which is awful. Honestly, and I hate to say this out loud, I'm having a difficult time imagining another reality being more likely. It's pretty awful to contemplate that that Putin would be rewarded for this. I realize that life isn't fair and um, like this, just out of the CBS News. 
Uh, Ukrainian officials and local residents have said the mayor of a small town, along with her husband and son, were executed by invading Russian forces that until recently had occupied the area. So it's more stories coming out of these reclaimed towns as the Ukrainians push them back. They were shot and thrown into a pit in the forest. So that's what the Russian military was doing as they went from town to town and came in. That's not denazifying, denazification. That's not rescuing no. the Ukrainians. There no, might be Rus- like- there might be a lot of Russian soldiers that were surprised this wasn't a training operation and horrified to do what they wanted, what they were told to do. Appears that there were plenty of Russian soldiers that were perfectly okay with doing what they were going to do. Yeah, I just pray that NATO never again succumbs to the naive fantasy that uh, they can be weak and peace will uh, continue. Doesn't work that way. Wow. What an ugly story. Uh, More on the way. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. they let Will Smith stay in the audience was that they asked Chris Rock and he said it was okay. So now we just ask the victim right after they get hit in the head? Hey, you cool if the guy who just attacked you hangs around for a while? You don't want to make him mad again. I can't believe the Academy has a worse concussion protocol than the NFL. I can't even blame the Academy for not knowing what to do. Nobody knew what to do. Even people at the Oscars were Googling, did Will Smith just slap Chris Rock? (laughs) I think we should just acknowledge that that was one of the craziest things we will ever see in our lives. It's truly like the Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction, but if Janet's nipple slapped Timberlake. I don't know nationwide how this will pan out, but certainly the jokes on Saturday Night Live ran against Will Smith as being, you know, cool or normal or sane or anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was like 100%. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? I won't take long on this, but a glimpse of perhaps a nipple? You had to rewind it four times to be sure. Shocked America. Changed the FCC. It changed everything. But an act of violence is like, meh, that was funny. That was crazy. What just happened there? We're we're such an odd country. (laughs) (laughs) You used to drink Miller Lite, didn't you, Joe? I still occasionally do. Thank you. It's National Beer Day on Thursday. Super. Um, (laughs) That's your response? Super. (laughs) Well, you know me. I reject all National Everything Day. So... Because of complaints that light beer, particularly Miller Light beer, tastes too much like water, for National Beer Day, they're releasing these drops that you can put in your Miller Light beer that make it taste more like beer. So if you want more beer-flavored beer, you can put these drops in your beer. Now, is that brought to you by Coors or something? No, that Miller Lite. Like Miller, no. MillerLite.com slash collection slash beer drops if you want some. That's crazy. Aren't they conceding that their beer doesn't taste like beer? Or doesn't taste enough like beer? I was perfect. I drank lots of Coors Light. I liked the fact that it tasted like water, kind of beery. It was fine with me. It didn't bother me. I wanted to get drunk, so that was I'm my main drunk. concern. Mm. Uh, I was not like trying to uh, figure out if it had hops or uh, a hint of chocolate or anything like that. I just I wanted <laughs> inebriation. Hint of chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> 
Three in five Americans admit to waking up in the middle of the night thinking about finances. I woke up in the middle of the night last night. I was thinking about finances. I don't know if that what woke me up, but that's what I ended up thinking about. What are people worrying about? Uh, extremely concerned, very concerned, 20% gas prices. Mm. Uh, about a third, extremely or very concerned. I'm sorry, uh, I way undershot the number. Uh, extremely or very concerned about gas is 68%. Groceries is the one that gets me 60%. I'm in that category. Jeez, it's expensive to buy groceries. Holy cow. Uh, housing, 40%. Other goods and services, 53%. Again, that's extremely or very concerned. Not even just concerned. Yeah, I'll bet that grocery statistic is skewed by the number of single people polled. I mean, if you're grocery shopping for one, that's one thing. But, you know, for a spouse, couple of kids, whatever, well, that's uh, pretty much quadrupled your grocery bill. Yeah, I was listening to a, uh, a libertarian on a podcast over the weekend talk about how gas just always gets outflated uh, um, uh, attention just because it's like the only thing we buy where the price is up yeah, everywhere you go. There's the price mm-hmm. listed to you every single day of your life. There's the price. We don't we don't get that with, you know, you kind of know what bacon costs, but, you know, not to the penny and you don't watch it go up and down on a daily basis. But lots of things have gone up as much or more than gasoline. And uh if you don't if you don't recognize that, good for you. I sure notice it when I go to the grocery store. If you miss an hour of the show, grab the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty.